Welcome to the Worship Podcast for Grace Episcopal Church in Newton, Massachusetts for Sunday, February 14th, 2021. I'm Regina Walton, pastor and rector. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome at God's altar at Grace. Normally, we would have our Shrove Tuesday Pancake Supper this Tuesday night. However, this year, instead of loading up on sausages and piling on the syrup, we're going to tune in and watch the Newton City Council take up the question of our application for historic preservation funding through the CPA to save our historic bell tower. Please pray for that meeting, for our city councilors, for our own Grace Tower team, who has worked so incredibly hard on this project, and for our whole community as we pray that the City Council will support the prior acceptance and support for full funding from the Community Preservation Committee in Newton. Then on Wednesday, you can observe Ash Wednesday online via the service at noon from St. Paul's Cathedral in Boston or our Grace service at 7.30 p.m and details of both of those services on Zoom are in your Grace Today email newsletter this week. May God bless you and keep you as we begin another Lent. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them any more, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What is it that sets human beings apart from all other animals? It's not our use of language. Plenty of other animals and birds have that. It's not our use of tools. Other primates and creatures use tools. It does not appear to be any kind of moral superiority or ability to profit from previous mistakes. I'll just leave that there for this morning. No, what scientists say sets us apart from other animals 
is our human ability to learn from each other and to pass on that knowledge down the generations. A chimpanzee may learn to use a simple tool and it may help him to have an advantage over the other chimps in getting food, but he doesn't show it to all the other chimps around him. They don't improve the tool and pass this wisdom down their generations. The same with your dog. If you teach your dog a neat trick, she doesn't then go and teach it to all the other dogs at the dog park. Other animals may show their young the basic way to survive in the world, but they do not improve upon each other's knowledge or really share any special innovations they come up with. The human ability to teach each other to share information and discoveries and then to pass them on down the generations is what makes culture, society, and technology possible. It's what makes us human. We've got to keep learning and adapting our whole lives. And through our lives, we have all different teachers, starting with parents and caregivers, then on through our schooling. Once we enter our working lives, whatever that work may be, we have another kind of teacher that we learn from, not as children, but as adolescents or younger adults that we call mentors. The term mentor is straight out of Greek mythology. Mentor was an older friend of Odysseus, whom he left in charge of his son Telemachus when he went off on his travels. Daniel J. Levinson, in his classic book on adult psychological development, The Seasons of a Man's Life, discusses the complexity and importance of the mentoring relationship to young adults. The mentor is teacher, sponsor, host, and guide, exemplar, and counselor. The mentor is a sort of a mixture of a parent and a peer, and is normally about a half generation older than the mentee, about eight to 15 years. The mentor provides crucial support to the realization of the young adult's dream for his or her life. And all mentoring relationships end. Sometimes, often, this is with a dramatic break, a conflict, or a philosophical disagreement. Sometimes the mentor dies. Sometimes the mentee surpasses the mentor in development and needs to move on from their counsel. Sometimes the mentor just ages and retires and becomes less accessible, or the, and the relationship becomes more of a trusted friend or a peer or colleague. However it happens, the mentoring relationship is a stage, and then that developmental stage ends, and the adult, no longer so young, has to continue on their own, has to continue to make their way without that support though hopefully having internalized the best of their former mentor. We see this relationship enacted on a mythic scale. Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, Harry Potter and Dumbledore. It's part of the hero's journey. And we see it in our own less heroic lives with important coaches, bosses, camp counselors, dissertation advisors, or family members. I don't think we have enough ways in our society of honoring and recognizing our mentors. These relationships are so formative for us, so foundational to our development professionally, personally, emotionally. These are the primary relationships outside those with our parents that help us navigate our way in the world 
and yet we don't really have the language to recognize that fully. The story from 2 Kings about the disappearance of the prophet Elijah and the handing on of his mantle to his protege, Elisha, is perhaps the most moving story about the end of a mentoring relationship. Probably very few of us could personally relate to the professional world of the Hebrew prophets as it's depicted here, though they do seem to have conferences. There's sort of a lot of them gathered. And yet I bet that many of us can relate to the powerful emotional experience of this story, can powerfully connect to Elisha's grief as he watches his beloved mentor disappear. The fact that his request is granted, that he has in fact inherited a double share of the prophet's spirit, he has internalized his mentor to the point that he will always live inside him. This does not make up for his deep grief at the loss of Elijah. The handoff has happened, and when the fiery chariot disappears up into the sky, Elisha is left alone, about to face the biggest challenge and responsibility of his life as a prophet without his most trusted advisor. And I think this is one of the reasons that this story is paired with the Transfiguration Gospel this year from Mark. It's not just the twin theophanies, the two mystical visions of the divine that take place. The episode of the Transfiguration where Jesus' garments are turned dazzling white and he is lifted up on the holy mountain with Moses and Elijah, is not only about Jesus as prophet, Jesus coming into his glory. The transfiguration, I think, is where Peter recognizes for the first time that Jesus will someday leave him behind. Just as Moses left Joshua and was buried by God himself, and Elijah left Elisha looking up at the chariot. Peter tries to hold on to this moment. Let's build three dwellings, he cries. Poor Peter. This vision of Jesus' glory is also a vision of the cross because, Jesus, because Christ's glory is always bound up with his cross. The vision of the cross is also a vision of Peter and the disciples bereft. And yet we also know that while Jesus is in fact going to leave Peter, he is going to take up his cross and lay down his life. We know that this isn't the end of the story. Jesus will take up his life once again, his resurrected life, and return bodily for a time, and then he will send the Holy Spirit to be powerfully present with the disciples and all the believers in a new and everlasting way. Peter and the disciples will get a double share of Jesus' spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, mercurial, impetuous, quick to love, and just as quick to betray, he will finally become the steady rock that Jesus said he would be. He will spread the gospel. He will teach and heal and make new disciples. He will experience Christ in the breaking of the bread just as he used to sit at table with him during his earthly life. We are about to enter our second Lent during the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I'm really over it. This is a marathon, not a sprint, and I hate running altogether, always have. 
I'm tired. Despite all our efforts, this is still a time of less connection, less togetherness, less mutual support than we would like and than we need. It's a time of great loneliness for many. But we are not alone. Elisha wasn't alone. Peter wasn't alone. And neither are we. We may not feel like it, but we do have the resources, the formation, the spirit within us to keep going and to do what we need to do. We can summon up those who loved us and encouraged the best of who we are, who encouraged our dreams, even if they are no longer with us. We will be given the grace we need to meet the days ahead, to walk through another Lent to a brighter Easter day. In God's name, amen. So